You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Barag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Psalms. All of these surrounding nations are now threatening them against them ready to attack them for the purpose of destroying them to wipe them off the map if you will so that the name of Israel is remembered no more and what does Jehoshaphat do he pleads with God we don't know what to do there's nothing we can do but our eyes are on you The Bible teaches us that no enemy formed against us shall prevail. However, whenever we're in the midst of a relentless attack by our adversary, it's not always easy to take comfort in this promise. In today's message, Pastor J.D. reflects on the heart of Asaph, who, having no hope of victory, puts all his hope and trust in God. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. in Psalms chapter 83 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. I think it might be helpful to begin by pointing out a couple of observations from this psalm before we really start unpacking it. First, notice that Asaph's lists of these ten nations, they're all surrounding people groups. In other words, they all, all these nations that are listed here share a border with Israel. Again, that's going to come into play when we talk about Ezekiel 38, which we will hear in a moment. Secondly, it's notable that these bordering countries have conspired together with a very specific purpose. Again, very different than Ezekiel 38, which is a prophecy about this invasion of Israel for the sole purpose of taking a spoil taking what Israel has, not removing Israel off the map. That's the purpose of this Psalm 83 prayer, but not Ezekiel 38. So this conspiracy, I use that word carefully for, again, obvious reasons, but this conspiracy is for the sole purpose of wiping Israel off the map so that the name of Israel is remembered no more. Now, To me, and stay with me on this because I I don't want to oversimplify it, nor do I necessarily want to make it more complicated than it really is. But to me, this is why it seems to fit more with what's happened heretofore, which is why I lean towards this already being fulfilled. In other words... Both Jordan and Egypt have this peace agreement with Israel after failing to destroy Israel and wipe the name of Israel off the map. And also, moreover, it would also seem to explain why it is that they've been 
rendered inconsequential, and it's evidenced by their conspicuous absence from the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. Unique to the Ezekiel 38 prophecy is that all of the nations that are conspicuously absent from that prophecy are the very bordering nations that are listed here in Psalm 83. Now, why wouldn't, pray tell... (laughs) The nation of Syria not be mentioned in a prophecy such as Ezekiel 38 when you have this invasion taking place from the north. Certainly Syria would be and should be listed. I mean, I can explain and I'm good with Egypt and Jordan not being listed in that uh, invasion in Ezekiel 38. But Syria? I mean, they're right there. Enemies of Israel. So what happens that would explain the absence of Syria from this list of nations in Ezekiel 38? Well, we already know. It's Isaiah 17.1. It is the destruction of Damascus, Syria, becoming a ruinous heap, so much so that it's uninhabitable. That would certainly explain it. There, there is no Syria to ally together with Russia, Iran, Turkey, Sudan, Libya, and the stands, or what we refer to as Turkestan and the all the stands as one is referred to them. But there's also another very interesting reference to Saudi Arabia. We talk about this often as well. They are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 in verse 13, but not as being part of this allied invasion. They are there merely protesting, even questioning why it is that Russia, Turkey, Iran, et al. are all invading Israel for the purpose of taking a spoil. That's a very specific detail of which there are many details in the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. So I don't want to get too far off on that. We, we address this in our prophecy updates and we'll continue to in as much as these are prophecies that are certainly in play today. But for tonight, what I'm trying to establish here, and I guess even argue here, is is that none of these countries in Psalm 83 are present in the invasion of Ezekiel 38. Now, I understand that one would say, well, that's because Psalm 83 is fulfilled prior to Ezekiel 38. Okay. Again, I don't want to be dogmatic, but... I don't see Egypt, who has a peace agreement with with Israel, mentioned first and foremost in Psalm 83. Nor do I see Jordan. By the way, Jordan in particular has a very good relationship with Israel. They have to. Their very survival is at stake if they don't have a good relationship with Israel. And this is by the hand of God. God has designed it and really pre, I I guess for lack of a better word, pre-planned it. This is exactly what God said would happen. So if you have Egypt and Jordan first and foremost listed in Psalm 83 and they both have a peace agreement with Israel, I do not see them attacking Israel for the purpose of wiping Israel off the map. It just doesn't fit for me. And again, I know there are well-respected Bible teachers that would beg to differ. And it's one of those things where I just say, hey, let's agree to disagree 
agreeably. <laughs> uh, one has said that agreeing to disagree agreeably is one of the highest marks of spiritual maturity, and I would agree with that. I, I think we, again, do err greatly. I just, just want to go off here just for one more moment. I think we do err greatly when we major on the minors and we enter into and engage in these arguments that are not salvation issues. And I would even dare to say that the pre-tribulation rapture is not a salvation issue. And yet, how much division is there in the body of Christ concerning the pre-tribulation doctrine? I don't call it a theory. It's a, it's a doctrine and a sound doctrine. How much attack have those who believe in the doctrine, the sound doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture come under? Within the body of Christ. I mean, you would think it was a salvation. It is not a salvation issue. There are those who do not believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Guess what? They're going to go up in the pre-tribulation rapture. (laughs) If I was God, I I wouldn't say, hey, is that bad? It is. Pray for me. All right, let's uh, move on. It's my belief that the prophetic implications of Psalm 83 bring to the forefront the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So with these bordering countries out of the picture, and again, chief of which is Syria, then wouldn't you agree that the stage is set, the pump is primed, so to speak, for the Ezekiel 38 prophecy to be fulfilled? I mean, if we see all of these bordering, these surrounding people who have already heretofore been rendered inconsequential, wouldn't it be reasonable to conclude that the next prophecy is going to be Isaiah 17, which is the catalyst for Ezekiel 38? I mean, if you look at what's happening right now in Syria, particularly in Damascus, I mean... With Israel right now, we talked about this on Sunday, one click away, one click away, one strike away, and then all H-E double toothpicks breaks loose. We're on the cusp, I believe, of Ezekiel 38, which is brought to the forefront vis-a-vis Psalm 83. It also comports with the historic situation concerning Bible history. I I don't know if I can overstate it enough, but there is such a beautiful intersection and, again, marriage between Bible history and Bible prophecy. I think we talked about this two Sundays ago in the Prophecy Update. From the beginning, the very beginning in Genesis, (laughs) when you look back in history, Bible history, you see Bible prophecy already beginning to be fulfilled. It starts in Genesis 3.15 with the Proto-Evangelicum, as it's been called, the first prophecy in the Bible where God tells the serpent, the devil, that the seed of the woman, that's the virgin birth of the Savior, the Christ, is going to crush your... You'll bruise his heel. That's the crucifixion. But he'll crush your head. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the first prophecy in the Bible. And it started in Genesis 3.15. 
and how it comports with prophecy, history comporting and intersecting with prophecy is from the very beginning, Satan has sought to destroy and eliminate and exterminate and terminate the Jewish people, God's people. And he has sought from the beginning of time to eliminate Israel, to wipe Israel off the map. It didn't start in 1948, certainly. It started in the book of Genesis when Satan possessed demonically Cain to murder Abel. It didn't work, obviously, because the seed did not come from Abel. Satan is not all-knowing, by the way. He thought it was, but it wasn't Abel. It was Seth. And then so on and so forth. You go out throughout history and you see this prophecy being fulfilled from the beginning of time. Satan seeking to destroy Israel and God's chosen people. Why? Why? Because the Savior of the world would come from the woman. The woman is Israel. That's why when you fast forward to the book of Revelation... You find the last attempt by the Antichrist, Satan personified, will try to destroy Israel. But for the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, they are protected. They flee to, get this, of all places, Jordan, Petra. In modern-day Jordan, where for the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, God protects them from the Antichrist who seeks to destroy them. Because see, if Satan could have hypothetically, and this is a hypothetical of hypotheticals, if Satan could have succeeded in destroying Israel, he could have thwarted the first coming of Christ. Never going to happen. And then when he failed, he then now is going to try to thwart the second coming of Christ because there has to be an Israel for Jesus Christ to come to at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So again, hypothetically, it's a hypothetical of all hypotheticals. If he could destroy Israel, he could thwart the second coming. That has been his sole goal from the very beginning of history. And that's how it comports with prophecy. I hope that made sense. Well, this is where I'm going with all of it. And I appreciate your patience with me. And this is where I really sense the Lord wanted me to spend the remainder of our time on tonight. I'm familiar with this account in Second Chronicles 20. But more importantly, it has been a source of great encouragement to me over the years, what God did in Second Chronicles 20. And I, I'm going to argue, if you'll kindly indulge me. I'm going to argue that this psalm is primarily about the account that we have recorded in Second Chronicles 20. And it's ever so beautifully woven into the fabric of what God did for his people against all odds. I mean, impossible odds. And for those of you who are with us when we were in the studies through Kings and Samuel and Chronicles, when we got to this particular king, Jehoshaphat, he was one of only nine good kings in all of the history of Israel. And all of the other kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there were only nine kings, and they were all Judah, not Israel. There were only nine kings that did that which was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, and Jehoshaphat was one of them. 
And if you were to ask me what I thought was one of the most profound and powerful accounts of God doing the impossible for his people and delivering his people in all of the Bible, I would point to Second Chronicles 20. I want to begin in verse 5. You're certainly uh, welcome to follow along with me because this is what I, again, truly believe this psalm from Asaph is about. So we're told, verse 5, Second Chronicles 20, and Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Please don't think for a second that this is, I mean, this is in a sanctified way. He's reminding God, not that God needs to be reminded, but you might say it this way or see it this way. He's hanging on to the promises of God. And he's praying, pleading really with God. So he says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, nothing wrong with this, Drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And verse 8, they lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name. Interesting. Saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, verse 10, listen very carefully. The men of Ammon, oh, and Moab, oh, and Mount Seir. This is the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, Mount Seir. Whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, obeying God, by the way. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? And then I want you to pay particular attention to what Jehoshaphat prays. He says, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Have you ever been in that place where I mean you're looking at the situation and you're thinking to yourself, this is how it ends. Thanks for the memories. I mean, this is it. There's no way. I am powerless. I am helpless. I am hopeless against this. This will be the end of me. I do not see any way that God can get me 
out of this situation. And certainly that was the situation Jehoshaphat was in. All of these surrounding nations are now threatening them against them, ready to attack them for the purpose of destroying them, to wipe them off the map, if you will, so that the name of Israel is remembered no more. And what does Jehoshaphat do? He pleads with God, we don't know what to do. There's nothing we can do, but our eyes are on you. That's it. That's it. By the way, this really happened. This really happened. This looks like the end for Israel. And Jehoshaphat is just pleading with God, God, unless you do something, it's over. We don't know what to do. There's nothing we can do. We are powerless against this great horde, these nations that surround us for the purpose of destroying us. We don't know what to do, but... We're going to look to you. Our eyes are upon you. You know, <laughs> I, I, I share this from my own personal experience with the Lord, but the best possible place to be is when it's impossible. Let me say that again a different way. The best possible place for you and I to be in is the same place that Jehoshaphat is in. It's the best possible place to be. It's when the situation's impossible. Because if it's still possible for us, then it's like hands off to God. We can still do it. It's still possible for us. We do know what to do. It is possible that we can actually emerge victorious over this great horde that has come against us. It is possible. Okay, well, then you don't need me. It's when we come to the end of ourselves and we throw up our hands like Jehoshaphat and say, God, (laughs) seriously, this is impossible. To which I can almost imagine Almighty God in heaven looking down and saying, well, now I've got you right where I need you to be. Watch me now. Did you say it was impossible? Yeah. Did you say you don't know what to do? Okay. I do. It's not impossible for me. I'm the God of the impossible. It's impossible for you. So did you say your eyes are upon me? Good. Don't take them off of me (laughs) because watch me now. See what I will do. Because it's impossible for you and you don't know what to do. Now I can rush in. And I can be God. You just behold the salvation of the Lord. I'm going to take it a step further here and say, before we go any further here, God will orchestrate the circumstances of our lives. He'll choreograph the steps of our lives and bring us to this precise place for this precise reason. Because now, he's going to do that which only he can. There's a lot to learn from the book of Psalms, and we're so glad you've joined us to sift through it all with Pastor J.D. Farag on In Spirit and Truth. The range of emotions expressed in the pages we've been studying 
give us an accurate and beautiful picture of our Heavenly Father, the Almighty and loving Creator of the world. Before we end our time with you today, we'd like to share how you can access more of these messages right now. Simply visit InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com and click on Listen to search through our archive of Pastor J.D.'s teachings. You can even take these messages with you on the go with our mobile app. Find a link to our app on our website or search for In Spirit and Truth in your app store. This will provide you with hours of insight into the Bible, helpful links, and access to the latest editions of Pastor J.D.'s Mideast Prophecy Update. In these updates, Pastor J.D. takes a critical look at the news and events happening around the globe and compares them to the prophecies of the Bible, sharing God's views on what's taking place. These messages are new each weekend and will help you put world events into an eternal perspective. These Mideast Prophecy Updates are also available to watch on our YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. Again, that address is InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen to God's Word today. We pray it's blessed and encouraged you greatly. Pastor J.D. will continue studying through the book of Psalms when you join us next time, right here on In Spirit and Truth.